You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're talking with Dr. David Bluestein, a professor of counseling psychology at Boston College. His 2006 book, The Psychology of Working, made Dr. Bluestein a leader in the emerging field of vocational psychology. His new book, The Importance of Work in an Age of Uncertainty, discusses the eroding work experience in America and how to prepare young people to thrive in a complex world. Dr. Bluestein is joined by Ed Hidalgo from the Cajon Valley Union School District, a leading example of early immersive career education. Tom spoke with them right before a keynote session at Learn Launch in Boston, which was sponsored by ASA, a nonprofit that helps students know themselves, know their options, and make informed decisions to achieve their education and career goals. This is the first of a two-part series on starting career education early. Let's listen in. Dr. David Bluestein, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. It's great to be here. We're, uh, I'm in your home city of Boston. We're at the Learn Launch conference. Um, our friends from ASA uh, brought us together for an opening session today, and we, we are joined by Ed Hidalgo from the Cajon Valley School District. Hey, Ed. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. Um, it's, it's great to be with both of you, and I'm looking forward to our keynote session together. Um, David, I'd like to dive into your your background first. Uh, why psychology at Stony Brook? Interesting question. Um, my, my journey into psychology at Stony Brook had a circuitous route. I didn't start out with an interest in psychology. I, um, like a lot of people, started in pre-med and um, had the experience that many people have, which is it wasn't a great fit for me in a lot of different was contexts. Was it organic chemistry, maybe? Organic chemistry. <laughs> it was the day in organic chemistry, first day there. Yeah. I re- I didn't do well my first year. <laughs> and at that, that day, I went to the f- a phone booth, called my mom, collect calls in those days. And I said that I was, I was going to drop this. I, this wasn't for me. And then she said, how could you do this? You're, you're so smart. You were, you're the one in our family who was destined to do these kinds of things. And I said, I just feel like I can't do, this is not for me. And then she said, well, because you are so smart, I trust your judgment. You do mm. what you think is best. And that was an amazing moment for me. That's a transformative that's, moment. That's really great advice. And I took sociology, history, social mm. sciences, humanities. And that's where, I, that's where my heart is. That's where my talents are. And psychology at Stony Brook was a very good major. Um, not exactly the kind of psychology that I love. It was a bit behaviorist in that era, but I learned a lot and it really got me, um, got me the skills and the confidence to move forward. At, at Queens, you did a master's in counseling. So what, what had spurred the interest in counseling? Counseling, I, I had an interest in moving into um, a field where I could work with people. To be honest, I. Once I was at Stony Brook, I knew I wanted to be a professor. And actually, I thought of history, sociology. At that period, there were not a lot of faculty jobs. That was the sense that we got. And I thought, well, I also like psychology. And psychology, I could also work as a therapist, and there'd be a backup plan. So even then, I was thinking about career development and work. Um, And I was interested in counseling as opposed to clinical psychology. I felt that it had a more holistic, whole-person view of people. And um, I got my master's at Queens College, which is where I grew up. Then I worked in the field for a few years as a master's level counselor. The most prominent job being at a community college, which was incredible. And that's where I 
found the love of work and career because I worked with people who were being displaced from work, dis- people who were being laid off. It was the first major recession we had, 1980, 81, 10 or 11% unemployment. And I saw these folks coming in desperate for lifelong learning. And um, that's when I really, I also realized that that was really my calling because I come from a working class family. My father was a sheet metal mechanic. My mom worked in a department store. And I felt like this was the, the clear narrative path for me to, to do something for my community and for all those who were on the margins. So you've been a professor of psychology at uh, Boston College now for 21 years. Yeah. You, you've been, I think, nationally recognized for your, your focus on working and the psychology of work. What, what drew you to study why people work and how they work? Um, I would say it started at this community college, Rockland Community College, northwest of New York City. And I was also studying career development in graduate school at that point. I went to Teachers College Columbia, which was the home of one of the most important theorists in our field, Donald Super. And I was there after he retired, but there was this, it was in the air to study career development, lifelong, looking at different roles in life. And um, once I left, and actually my first academic job was at the University at Albany, in this part of the SUNY system, um, I started to do much more research on career development. And then in my first sabbatical in 1992, I used a sabbatical the way professors are supposed to, and I read outside of my area, and I started to read about labor economics. I started to read about poverty, and I really got enlightened. I kind of knew about poverty deeply. It was part of the you know, civil rights, Vietnam War, the whole kind of social movements of the late 60s and 70s. I realized that I could do something about it, and I started to focus on work as a in addition to career, that I felt that work was a broader term and that I felt, and others in my field also felt that the career focus was a bit elitist, focusing on those with a lot of choice. Did you read Studs Terkel? Yes, of course. Was was he the first uh, vocational psychologist in in a way? In some ways he was. He was the first narrative theorist. He gave people voice. And Studs Terkel's work was the um, inspiration for my newest book as well. I think for many of us, reading his work was really the the first time that we really took the reflective journey to think hard about why people work and um, how they choose or find their work. Uh, I don't know. Ed, did you did you read uh, Studs Terkel? No, I didn't. That's a new name for me. Interestingly um, enough, when did you when did you first uh, run into David's writings? Uh, I think from Dr. Ian Martin, who's really my, my mentor at University of San Diego, who really introduced me to Ble- Dr. Bluestein's work and specifically the psychology of working. Um, that, that was uh, your book about five years, six years that ago? That came out in 2006. Okay. It was my first first book, self-authored, you know, solo-authored book. And that book was, um, it, was a, it was a provocative book during its time. It, the focus was to transform the field of career development and transform counseling and also psychology in terms of how we understand working people's lives. I hoped it would be transformative, let me say that. Maybe it's up to others to make that decision. Some of the kind of core frameworks that we were working on adapting into the classrooms, the psychology of working wrapped around that in the sense that Cajon Valley is one of the highest poverty school districts in San Diego County. Um, 
the psychology of working really helped us understand the importance of decency of work and providing good work for, for all people and, and the social impacts of, of work and, and just how work can lift people up out of um, uh, their struggles. Um, and, and that's the work that we're trying to do in Cajon Valley. So Dr. Bluestein's work really provided a framework for us to understand just how big this, the impact could be. Look, I, I want to go. Uh, I want to go in the the wayback machine, uh, maybe 150 years, and just think about the what's happened in the nature work. Was the industrial revolution and the conception of the modern corporation was that the big shift in work and human history, where most people had been craftsmen and then most people became employees? Was that? That was the big a shift. A big inflection. A huge, huge change in work because work really is part of our evolutionary history. I mean, it's written about extensively in the Bible, in ancient texts. It's a big part of who we are. I mean, the first age of humanity is called the hunter-gatherer age, which is two, two occupations. Um, so in the Industrial Revolution, people left the farms, they left their communities, they went into the cities... And during that period, the number of jobs that, that existed expanded exponentially. Right. And that was a game changer completely. And during that period is when high schools changed. And the work of John Dewey 100 years ago talked about the function of high schools and people began to think about the function of high schools. Because in part, high schools needed to serve this new period of, of, of human development known as adolescence. And part of the function of adolescence was to give people time to figure out how they were going to fit into this rapidly growing occupational landscape. And it was at, the, at during that period was when the world of work changed radically and some ways for the better, some ways not for the better. Increased alienation. Right. So let's talk sort of specifically about the last 40 years, the information age. So we took the industrial age and then we added computers to it and sort of turbocharged many aspects. How do you think work changed for most people in the last 40 years? Well, I think it's changed as radically as it did during that industrial era period. Um, so first off, work is completely different than it was. When I wrote my dissertation, um, I wrote it longhand, and I, mm. at that point, hired somebody to put it on a word processor, the beginning of the word processor. Remember, it took up the entire room in this person's house, the Wang word processor. Um, it's completely changed. Um, it could change everything from communication to how we relate to each other, um, the access to information. And in addition, we see a, a downside, which is the loss of a lot of jobs, particularly um, at the less skilled levels. And I think sometimes people don't think this is a concern because the unemployment rate is low, but it's a major concern because what we have seen is incredible wage compression. And um, the wage compression has, is, is leading to so many problems that we're seeing around us. The political theater, social relations, um, the fabric of our lives has changed radically. Well, not only wage compression, but wage uh, inequity. This, yes. uh, this is a relatively new phenomenon. It's been going on, but it seems to be accelerating. And I, I guess I think we're a couple years into a new age that we haven't named yet, but one, one where machine learning uh, is, is having a profound effect. It's machine learning plus Internet of Things, right? Um, 
but it does feel like it's it's uh, accelerating some of these uh, influences. It feels like it's accelerating this shift um, away from long-term employment towards more freelancing, yes, more what we call precarious work, free agents. Right. Yes. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think How it's do we not, think about it? I think it's not a good thing. In fact, I've just done some, some research on the relationship between precarious work and various outcomes. And there's been extensive research on precarious work, particularly in Europe, particularly coming out of sociology and labor economics. From a psychological perspective in our new research study, we see that precarious work is associated with a lack of well-being, a lack of job satisfaction, a loss of work volition. So while there is there is some subset of freelance work that seems yeah. attractive but in the research we've done it seems to be it seems to work well when people have good financial resources for the forgotten half which is going to be the focus of some new work I'm going to do those who make $15 or less which is 46% of our population um, precarious work has been um, has been generally a nightmare it, it it's it's well put it it strikes me that for the small percentage, it's a return to craftsmanship. Yes. It's it's the profession as craft, and you can now live on these new commerce platforms and and be quite independent. You can live where you want and work where you want, um, and um, and and sort of return to this this uh, old view that we had of the life of the of the independent craftsman. But but as you said, that's that's probably a small percentage. That's a small percentage of the precarious workers. Yeah. So it's it is a big issue. It's being it's being discussed um, a lot in the academic world. I think it needs to be discussed more in the political discourse, the United States and other countries. It's the effect of of automation on the nature of work. And people have been all concerned about massive unemployment, but to look at just unemployment rates as a, the outcome of, of, of automation is a mistake. We have to look at the nature of work, people's experiences of work. Right. Uh, David, your new book is The Importance of Work in an Age of Uncertainty. The subtitle is really interesting. Um, the Eroding Work Experience in America. Why why that subtitle? Why, interesting. why do you think the nature of work is eroding? It's interesting. I didn't come up with a subtitle till I was basic, almost done with the book. That became the main theme of, of, the, of the research that, we, that I reported in there and of, uh, the, of the work I did on it in the six-year project of working on that book. One of the big takeaways in that book, which is framed around um, qualitative interviews of 58 Americans across the country, one of the main takeaways is that um, people experience an erosion within the workforce, the precarity of work, lack of stability, a lack of protection for workers, in some ways associated with the loss of union support. The other aspect of it was that people experienced an internal sense of erosion. So there was an experience of, of the erosion within the workforce that was mirrored within people's internal psychological experiences. And I felt like that was a major takeaway. And it was something that hasn't been discussed in, in, in the popular press about work and also in the field that I'm in, which is vocational and counseling psychology. People haven't really talked as much about the sense of erosion, the kind of denigration of our experience of work. Is it, um, is it realistic for us to think in this new age that most people could be engaged in work that they care about 
where they have a sense of purpose, where they feel like they could contribute? That's a great question. Throughout history, um, the idea of having a meaningful, purposeful work life has been available to a minority of people. Right. I, I write about this in my work, and I call it career choice privilege. Career choice privilege is not available to all. However, I think one positive outcome of automation is it could reduce our reliance upon tedium, tedious work and improve the quality of work. It will require serious systemic changes and a much more thoughtful and planful approach to managing the labor market. Um, but I do believe that people can, even if they do not find the work intrinsically interesting, they could find it meaningful in a sense of how it contributes to the broader social good and how it contributes to their family's welfare. In my book, I talk about my parents. Father was a sheet metal mechanic. My mother was a clerk, as I mentioned. And they found their, they felt enormous amount of dignity in their work lives. They didn't necessarily love what they did, what they did, but they felt that they were part of something bigger. And they felt that they were supporting their family and they had this dream of seeing their kids go to college and do well. And they, they did see that. Hi, I'm Nate McLennan, co-author of the new book, The Power of Place. Something unexpected happens when you explore a community for the first time. Your worldview shifts with each question, each interaction, and each inquiry. You understand the place more deeply, and yet the deeper you go, the more you realize you have to learn. And the deeper you go, the more you see the opportunities to make a positive impact. This is the power of place. My most important learning has come from place in the outdoors, jobs, conversations, and explorations, all teaching me skills and knowledge that were just as important as what I learned in school. I see that I can make an impact. I see that I can always learn. And I see that my actions create ripple effects across communities and ecosystems. This is what our young people need to learn, that they matter and their place matters. They can make change happen in place, and every learner has the right to make a difference. You're invited to explore or continue your own place-based journey with us through our new book, The Power of Place, available for pre-order now at the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. So it, your book um, is full of a lot of powerful stories, but it, it is a, a rather dark view of what's happening in, in the nature of work. It, it, I, I guess I, I'm struck by the paradox of this new age of how great work is for some people the just the level of opportunity that people have today is in some places uh enormous it is yes uh, and, and for many um it's really awful and tedious and so there's this uh, i guess i feel paradoxical about the the new age of work is that fair yeah, it is fair and i think what i what i often think about is that we're, there are really two americas at work right um like the michael harrington book about the other America um, from the early 60s. So there are really two Americas at work and there are kind of two bifurcated experiences of work. Yeah, there are, there are many people in, in not just in the US but around the world who are experiencing enormous opportunities, a lot more wealth, but the inequality that you mentioned earlier is becoming pervasive and that is where the dark view comes from. But I am ultimately hopeful and I uh, and I um, hope that that does come through in the book. Let's let's come back to that. Um, I, I want to dive in uh, quite specifically to how you think, given given this complex, changing nature of work, how 
how and when should we introduce young people to the world of work? Well, this does bring me to Ed Hodogel's amazing work in uh, Cajon Valley and outside of San Diego. I've had the um, amazing experience of visiting um, the schools in Cajon Valley. And um, just to provide a brief overview for the listeners, in Cajon Valley, they are providing um, a career intervention that's completely embedded into the curriculum from K through eight. And um, some of my colleagues might look at this with some degree of question and say, why are we focusing on career so early? I think that's a much more complicated kind of process. What Ed is doing, and with enormous leadership and creativity and passion, is providing an opportunity for kids to learn about themselves. And learning about themselves via the lens of work is ultimately helping them to establish their sense of identity. The theorist whose work informs Ed's work, John Holland, was an amazing theorist, latter part of the 20th century in vocational psychology, talked about interests being our personality, that it's really, he felt they were synonymous. So when kids learn about their interests and they, and Ed will describe this shortly, and they're able to understand themselves through these different um, lenses, these Holland types, they have a much clearer sense of who they are. And so in the program at Cajon Valley, they're not necessarily telling these kids or suggesting that in fourth grade you should become a marine scientist. What they're helping them to think about is this is who you are now, who you are can change, who you are can evolve, but now you can learn to love who you are. You can learn to really appreciate this and feel good about it. There's a lot of latent impacts from this project. The most important one I think is, is helping kids feel engaged in school, having a buy-in to the adult world and experiencing a sense of hope, as well as experiencing the sense of possibility with themselves. So um, there are, most of the research in career development does support interventions for the early years, but it's not focused on necessarily telling, helping kids to think about exactly what they'll do. That's going to come with time, but helping them to connect to the world of work in a very meaningful, psychologically deep way. Uh, so I appreciate those, uh, the description of the work in Cajon Valley. It, um, I think the, the difference in what I've seen in Cone Valley is, uh, as you said, that it's it's embedded in the curriculum. It's not the addition of some career education. Right. Um, it it is the curriculum. It's the it's the way kids explore the world. And um, you've really embedded these these beautiful um, reflections where kids are thinking in each one of the lessons. Uh, who am I? And what am I good at? And what do I enjoy? And can I see myself? Um, in these job sort of job clusters, right? Yeah, it's and really all the credit and thanks goes to um, to the teachers, the educators that are in the classroom um, who have accepted this work, who have opened their hearts and opened their minds to learn the language. Vocational psychology gives us this beautiful lexicon of language around career development. It, it seems that everyone wants to talk about college and career readiness, um, but they don't really have the language of career, of vocational psychology. We understand ed psych, behavioral psych, um, developmental psych, but we don't understand vocational psychology. And that's what we've brought into the classroom, this language, and as teachers, as the adults they are on their career journey uh, across their own lifespan, they're learning about their strengths, their interests, and their values. And that's how we start this process. Yeah. 
is when work is so dynamic, I mean, my, critics might argue that starting at age eight might be too early if they're not going to be seriously employed for, for 10 or 15 years. Uh, how would you respond to that? Well, the, what Ed has done in such a very thoughtful and, and creative way is he's used personality types. These John Holland developed six personality types based on a distillation of, of interest inventories. 50, 60, 70 years ago, he and his colleagues did factor analyses. And these were the six clusters that organized people's interests and their personalities. So I really see the world of work as helping people to understand their personality type and then seeing how their personality type can relate to the world of work. And then through these lessons about the world of work, they're also delivering very important content about science, about math, about social studies, um, English, literary arts. So the, the focus on the world of work is a vehicle to deliver pedagogy. How, how sticky are these personality types? Do you, do you see those as fixed or are they? I think at the early ages, they are much more malleable. By the time we get to late adolescence, adulthood, they tend to be a, a bit more fixed. However, this is important in Holland's type that we are not considered to be one personality type. We're a configuration of three of them usually, three, maybe even four. So I'm a configuration of three personality types that are very closely aligned. They're very similar. And over the course of my life, they've switched in order. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's, it's malleable in the sense of the ones that are close, to, close together yeah. in, your, in your personality. And shift for either of you is there do you is there any danger in typecasting kids early do they do they sort of get into and feel trapped by uh, Let me ask, uh, no, no not at all in fact i was in a classroom two days ago and i, I have this recorded on video and um i think there was a young young girl in uh, probably fourth grade and she goes i think today you know i'm social and enterprising but we have a long life to live and that could change over time um, it's not fixed. And so the students almost naturally are understanding that uh, their theme codes mm -hmm. aren't fixed and that they can change over time. But the beauty in the framework is it provides children this lens to understand each other. So even as they're creating teams and say it's social, this is a social enterprising predominant team, well, we need someone with conventional and investigative come over. So, oh, Lisa, will you come over and bring the, your conventional into this group? We need some more organization in our project. Students are naturally making these decisions on their own. So is this, is this compatible with uh, growth mindset that your, that your capabilities as a human can grow with effort? I, I would Totally compatible? I, I, I would say so. I would say so as well, that, that the personality types are not the same thing as giving people information about their achievement. It's really in the world of values and interests. Um, I do understand this, this, this kind of concern about, do these types become a self-fulfilling prophecy? Right. And there are some issues, and I've discussed this with Ed, mm -hmm. in Holland's theory of gender-based socialization yeah. and race and ethnicity-based okay. socialization right. that tend to circumscribe the options for people um, and, our, and our personality types are formed not just by our dispositions, but also by our life experiences. So one of the advantages of this is that kids can learn about all six of these personality types and can um, explore them. And by having positive experiences, and, you know, if they say, well, I, 
I seem to be high and social and investigative, but I really see myself, you know, as a, as a business person, as a manager, then, you know, the teachers, counselors can work with them on, um, let's get you some more activities where you can do those kinds of things. And, well, that, and that's an important point because in our framework, we ensure that students have exposure to each of the RIASEC theme areas, every child, every grade, every year. Uh, we're not testing students in the early grades. They're self-reporting their interest themes multiple times throughout the year. So they're claiming their themes. We're not telling them what their themes are. They're claiming it. And what's powerful, when they can start making connections between the theme codes and what they're doing in class. So for a child to be able to say that Wilbur's enterprising because he negotiated with Templeton in order to save the egg sack, in order to save Charlotte, as they're reading Charlotte's Web, they're making these meta connections between the Ryasek themes, characters in a book, and then you ask students, okay, well, which, are the, which of the characters are you most like? Which of the characters um, represent the types of skills and ways of working that, that most represent you? Which would you claim? And teachers are doing this naturally throughout the school year, and you see students' faces light up. Yeah, that sounds like me. That does sound like me. And that leads to, I think, agency and personal learning. This is about me. All right, more, more on that in, uh, in our next episode, Ed. Um, David, I, I wanna end with a big question. Yes. Um, and it, it, this really gets to your last chapter on helping more people work with dignity and opportunity. It, it strikes me that we've gone through a period of time reinforced by this information age that really created a focus on individuals and on extraction and consumption. Mm -hmm. um, we've created schools based on that. Um, and it feels like we've taken that to sort of a bizarre extreme. And it, I think we're beginning to realize that um, we can't all just be in it for ourselves. We can't just continue to consume at the way, the way we have been. Um, in other words, it feels like we're at this new age of that is going to require more mutuality, uh, that we're going to create more wealth in the next 10 years than we have in the history of the planet with, uh, with artificial intelligence. Uh, and, and exponential technologies. And it, I guess it strikes me that it's all gonna come down to how we learn to share, how we learn to share the massive wealth that's gonna be created, the extraordinary benefits that are gonna be created. It strikes me that that subject is related somehow to your last chapter on, on how we help people, more people live with dignity and opportunity. Yes, actually, that's a, it's beautifully stated. And that's ex that is, embedded in that last chapter, I do think we're at a nexus point. And I think it's a really fundamentally important nexus point. I believe that it, in order for us to share this wealth, we have to make intentional decisions to be kind and caring and to be generous to others. Ultimately, my book is positive because I think we're at a point where if we know what's going on in the world, we can make more intentional decisions about it. Yeah. And I come out strongly in favor of doing what we can to share resources as well as share the antecedents of resources, which are really good schools for everyone and all of the other antecedents and aspects of life that are critical for people to thrive. But right now we're living in what I call the kind of like the height of the neoliberal economic system. And I, I hope that we're at a point where we can really critique this, which is 
you know, the kind of worshipping of the deregulatory state. This will require much more systemic planning and much more of an active intervention by government and other leaders. It, you know, it's fascinating, David, that we live in a country that has created this unparalleled economic engine, right? And most of the most of these extraordinary um, innovations are going to originate in America, the ones that both for, for good and for bad. And the flip side of this is that we may, compared to the rest of the developed world, be unusually poorly positioned uh, to, to deal with the, the consequences um, of these innovations. We may be poorly positioned to, to learn how to share uh, the wealth and the benefits compared to our friends in, in Europe and Asia that yes. uh, have more of a, a collective history. It's a challenge for America, right? It's a huge challenge for America, and it gets at the core of who we are as a people, gets at the core of our identity, touching on the work that Ed Hidalgo is doing. It touches on the core of who we are as individuals and as a collective nation. I, I appreciate how you're um, your book makes it quite specific about uh, it does come down to individual behaviors of being kind and caring and generous, right? It Absolutely. does start with each of us as individuals. Exactly. David Bluestein, thanks for being on the Getting Smart podcast. It was a pleasure. Enjoyed it very much. A big thanks to Dr. Bluestein for joining us today. We appreciate his thought leadership in vocational psychology and his advocacy for more work that is full of dignity and opportunity. For more on career education, be sure to check out episode 240 with Gene Eddy, CEO of ASA. We've got it linked in the show notes and on the blog. Also, stay tuned next week for a deeper conversation with Ed Hidalgo on the best career education system out there. Okay, listeners, that's it for this week's episode. But before you go, make sure you hit that little subscribe button so you're sure to get every episode delivered directly to your device every Wednesday morning. And if you love what you heard or have ideas for future episodes, make sure you leave us a rating and a review. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off. 